welcome to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for September, because we're not doing the days of the week. And me telling the reason why we're not doing the days of the week and just becoming the months is just like a bit more of a not joke that doesn't really need to happen anymore, so we're not going to do it anymore. Anyway, that is beside the point. Tonight is a quick start on the Kickstarter um, show. And what we do on a quick start on the Kickstart show is there will be somebody out there who is kickstarting their Kickstarter project. And we've asked them to come on the show to tell us all about it. And they have said yes. And the person that we've asked was Mark Spector. And Mark Spector is from the Grand Gamers Guild, which I am intrigued to find out what that is all about. Mark Spector is currently looking for funding on the Artemis project, which is not only looked for funding, it's found funding, it's taken a, a quite a little bit of extra funding on top of its funding. So he is, he is here tonight to tell us a little bit about himself, to tell us a little bit about the game, and to tell us a little bit about where he kind of fits into the hobby. So hello there, Mark. Hello, thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming along. Um, delighted to to have you have you join us and tell us a little bit about um, the Artemis project itself. For everybody else who's out there who's maybe listening for the first time, thank you for joining us and listening along. The reason that we do this is quite simple. We do it for you guys. We've been we've passed our two hundred episodes. We spent those two hundred episodes doing it for us. It's about time we turned that around and we started doing stuff for you guys instead. And the second reason that we did this was because I put a little bit of a shout out on the Facebookings and um, somebody says, oh, you might want to speak to Mark about his project. And I went, okay. So we started a dialogue and here we are. So um, are you well, sir? Oh, yeah, I'm fantastic. I've had a good day. The project is uh, having a strong day. We just broke through a benchmark stretch goal. Revealed some good stuff, and uh, yeah, we got 10 days left to make some amazing things happen. That's excellent. That's excellent. Um, so mood, mood in camp at the moment is kind of upbeat and happy and kind of smiles all around it. Absolutely, and believe me, for anyone who's run a Kickstarter, you know <laughs> that not every day is like that. In fact, there are many days when you question your existence and why you <laughs> chose to t- undertake this uh, crazy thing, but, but, but you do it anyway. <laughs> so uh, let's 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 talk a little bit about existence, and let's talk a little bit about your existence in the hobby. Um, I mean, one of the things we like to do in the show is we like to have a little bit of a, a look back in the past before we have an eye on the present, and we look off into the spectre of the future. <laughs> I don't know why I, did, don't know why I did that. Um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got involved, kind of like in the hobby? yourself a little bit about your history so you know i've been on a few podcasts and a lot of them ask this question and the funny thing is the more often i ask this question the more i realize that my history as as a gamer kind of goes back pretty far so way back when i was but a wee lad growing up uh my mom and i used to play games uh, two games in particular one was called greed and the other was called Mm -hmm. monster mansion and You know, they were fantastic in my memory, but I'm sure they were really, really terrible games, is my guess. I've never gone back and checked. Um, so, we need to, you know, you need to I check this. Games... I don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, if I, I tell you what, if I ever get exposure to a copy of one of those games, because I wouldn't mm. even begin to know where to find them, I will absolutely sit down and play them. And then we can uh, we can have a part two to this interview and see how they <laughs> hold up after uh, could, uh, 35 years. You could do a video review or something like that. That could there be your success. That could be your successful thing at the end of the funding. You have got ten days to find a copy of Monster Mansion and review it for your own video. It could be a late stretch goal. The, the possibilities are endless, Mark. Yeah, I, be, um, I bet someone out there on the internet has it. I mean, someone has everything. Whether they would be okay. willing to part with those precious gems is a totally different story. But you know, but I, but I'm in no hurry anyway. So you're playing games with your mum. Yeah, and then I do remember that around my early teenage years, I started picking up Dungeons & Dragons, like many people in the hobby. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was around the time of second edition Dungeons & Dragons. And of course, I I grew up on the cartoon that, uh, you know, had the kids who got lost in the roller coaster and went and did adventures with uh, the Dungeon Master and Venger and all that fun stuff. So D&D always represented a world that was super intriguing to me. But that until I was about, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that, I had never actually, you know, indulged in. But I had a friend who was really into it and who was my game master or dungeon master, as the case may be, Mm -hmm. and did that for a couple years. Then when I went to college, everything kind of stopped. Uh, It really, like everything, (laughs) pleasure reading, pleasure television, pleasure gaming, whether it be... uh, Oh, yeah. It was... I was a very studious person and there was... I don't want to say there was no time for fun because I really had a lot of fun doing the things I did. I loved being mm. a hall president. I loved mm. being a peer minister. Mm. I loved being busy. I loved what I was studying, which at the time was uh, psychology and religion. So well, I was okay. having a good time. It just was a completely different type of good time. And um, then when I got out of college, I actually, um, you know, I got married almost immediately out of college and didn't really pick up mm-hmm. gaming again until 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. And that happened as a result of being a mystery shopper, actually. Because, and then this is kind of a weird story. But this, yeah, I'm, I'm going to hear this. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, a lot of people wonder what in the world mystery shopping is. But it's when you go into a store, you evaluate their service, and then you essentially get paid for it, either in product or in money or both. And... Mm. Way back in the mid-2000s, there were these stores, at least in the United States, that were called Wizards of the Coast stores. And so once a month, I would go into those stores, and I would have to present the associate with a scenario, uh, get a recommendation, and then either purchase that recommendation or something else. And it was under that disguise, that subterfuge, that I actually amassed a tremendous library of... TSR, I don't actually know if it was TSR at that point, but basically third edition Dungeons and Dragons books, as well as um, all of the knockoff books that came under the uh, the open license that was available. And then eventually, when I ran out of books, I came to the store to do my shop, and I ended up asking about a board game, and ended up yeah. working out with Catan. And wow. then it was just, uh, it was amazing. It was uh a transcendent experience and after that came origins and anyway yeah here we are today so there was like a much bigger answer uh to a question than you probably thought you were going to get well um when you were back at college and you were majoring in psychology and religion did you have a career path kind of carved out for yourself then were you yes. i mean because you said i mean you said you know listen i 
because most people say, well, I went to college and that's when the fun started. And you said, well, I went to college and I got really kind of studious. So, I mean, what was your kind of career path at the time or sure. what you were, what were you thinking about doing or, or what were you planning on doing at the time? At the time, I had every intention of being a psychologist and I toyed between clinical psychology and then mm -hmm. I actually got involved with a professor who did a lot of research on procrastination and I actually ran a study on procrastination for him, but nothing much ever really came of it. <laughs> it's spent too much time kind of thinking about starting the study or? <laughs> no, no, it just, uh, <laughs> basically, gosh, it's really hard to tell, but I, there were a lot of circumstances that didn't bring it to fruition. Um, mm -hmm. partly, partly on me, partly on him. And if I, if I tried to reconstruct it, I'd probably be telling tales out of school. But um, mm -hmm. there was one minor component of the study that had to do with uh, time orientation and procrastination that actually did eventually get published. There was a, right. a, one of those personality surveys that people took and determined whether they were past-oriented, present-oriented, or future-oriented as determined by the actual survey. And... Yeah. You know, somewhere out there you can look and I think basically the conclusion was is that in terms of sort of a, a mental or emotional orientation, procrastinators spend a lot of time thinking about the past as opposed mm -hmm. to the future. Um, what other conclusions or work has, you know, you could draw on that? I don't know that it ever went any further. But uh, so, yeah, that, that was my college years. And then when I when I got out of college, I basically decided that I was kind of done going to school at least for a while. And I yeah. really didn't want to pursue any more education. And mm. my wife, or, or my girlfriend slash fiance, who is now my wife, actually, so we graduated simultaneously, but she actually had to complete some college work and um, got an internship with the European Parliament. So at that point, we actually moved to Belgium. All and right, okay. lived, Yeah, it was an amazing time. We moved to Belgium, lived there for four and a half months. Sadly, at that time... I was into neither games nor beer, so it was a huge opportunity missed. <laughs> but I did watch. Been, you could have been going to Essen. I know, seriously. Been... And and now that you say that, I never made the connection. But I was there during Essen. I was there in the fall of 1998 through very early 1999. So we were absolutely there when Essen was going on, and I had no idea whatsoever. Could you so, just give yourself a little bit of a shake? For not doing that, if you don't mind, just yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll smack myself around. <laughs> no, I'm so, not asking. No, not smacking. Maybe a gentle flick on the end of the nose, or uh, okay, you know, paper cut but, at the very, very worst. I mean, nothing, nothing worse than that. <laughs> but <laughs> you're right. Had I um, had I uh, sort of been into the things then that I am now, it definitely would have put me perhaps on this path much, much earlier. That's an interesting observation. But then it might not have put you on the path at all, because it might have been the case that you might have gone to Essen and went, "Oh my goodness, look at all this!" And it might have been too much. You can you That's find true. your path. You find your path at the time. I mean, I know a lot of people who getting into the hobby just now, where it is just now, might not be the best thing for them, because it's very overwhelming at the moment. There's a there's a hell of a lot going on at the moment it, as well. It is daunting. Every time you turn around, you bang into another publishing company. And I'm one exactly. of them. So. <laughs> so did you, I mean, I mean, did you, did you get into psychology then? Or did you need more kind of, did you need to go and get kind of more education? To become, yeah. Or did you go, did you go on and become like a full kind of psychologist? 
No, not at all. Um, in the United States, at least, and I know your your listener base is probably somewhat international, you really can't do anything with merely a bachelor's degree in psychology. So mm-hmm. I would have had to go for a, a, a master's and or a PhD. And mm-hmm. that just wasn't the path. So actually, what happened was, is I ended up coming back to the United States after our brief time in Belgium and being a, a salesperson for an insurance company, which is what I did for 18 years before I decided wow. I'd had enough. Wow. that's. But then you do what you do. And I know a lot of people that kind of have these plans and then they wake up the next day and they say, oh, I've done 10 years doing that. I mean, I've done, I did uh, I did about eight years in retail myself. You know? Yeah, so. well, at the time, I really liked insurance. I, I, I liked what the company stood for. I, mm. I get how insurance functions in society. I was selling a product that I believed in. Mm. But after 18 years, I changed. The company changed. The political and financial environment changed. And yeah. I stayed on for probably two years longer. Um, not two years longer, but but two years of sincere unhappiness waiting to turn a corner. Because, you know, you spend 18 years doing something, you're going to have ups and downs. It's not as if uh, every, every day you walk in and it's a bed of roses. Everything has its challenges. Yeah. So I spent two years trying to turn a corner waiting to get that enthusiasm that I'd had for 16 years running. And mm. I just couldn't take it anymore. I was a very, very unhappy person. And I was tired of being unhappy. So I turned in my resignation and called it done. I mean, sometimes you've got to do that. I mean, I know of a lot of people that it's better the devil you know. You know, you stay in the same place because the actual fear, you're the, you're the, you're the established guy. You know what I mean? You're kind of like, everybody knows you. Everybody, all your customers like you. You know, you've got a massive network. You know, you're a well-known name. And then to go, it, even to go into a similar place, it's, it's daunting. And you become the new boy, whether you've been doing it for five years or whether you've been doing it for kind of like, kind of like 15 years. I mean, during the, during the time, the insurance time, were you kind of keeping up with a hobby at that time? Was it something that you kind of touched on kind of now and again? Or were you, I mean, you mentioned obviously picking up Catan. So I'm guessing that was the board game collection kind of amassing as you were amassing kind of premiums from clients, basically. <laughs> so the board gaming came a little bit later. When I first started the insurance career, I was still very much into the role playing and the Dungeons and Dragons. And mm. what's funny is that I, I was a dungeon master. So I ran the game for eight years uh, for a group of people. And I would use my lunch hour to work on my campaign. And I would, I had a big map that was, you know, three sheets of paper by three sheets of paper. And I hung it on my cubicle wall, sort of not only as uh, inspiration and something to think about when my mind wasn't busy doing other things, but so that when lunchtime came, I could pull it down and, and work on it. Mm-hmm. And my boss at the time actually asked me, she pulled me into a meeting um, basically to say, <laughs> hey, I see you have this weird thing on your wall. I just need to know that you're actually working at work and not working on, you know, whatever that is, because she had no idea what it was. And I assured her very much so that I was doing my job that I was being paid to do and mm-hmm. that I only... uh only had that there for, like I said, for inspiration and to muck about on my break. When you were DM, were you running kind of different campaigns or were you running kind of like campaigns that kind of mingled 
into each other. So, did you have did you have a, like a big dream, or were you kind of guy that says, right, let's finish, scrap our characters and start again? What kind of kind of GM were you? No, this was one. It, actually, it was two mega campaigns. So the first yeah. one that lasted about four years was actually based on uh, a third party supplement. The name is escaping me now, but they mm-hmm. had this. Um, this group of, of baddies that were referred to as the carnival crew. And so basically my story was that I had the carnival crew traveling around the land, uh, basically recruiting children or kidnapping children for sacrifice. And, and eventually what happened and the way that scenario ended was the group met with the carnival crew or met, met the carnival king in this swamp area and one of them cast some sort of a vortex spell, and that was sort of the big finale. It was it was it was amazing. The the actual battle took about three hours. It was exhausting wow. for emotionally and physically. It was super late at night, and what actually happened was is oh this is what happened. It wasn't a spell. They actually got a knife that could cut through the fabric fabric of reality, and they oh. opened a vortex. And the big bad guy got sucked into the vortex, and then they escaped the swamp area, but that became a permanent landmark where, you know, nothing could live because if it got too close, it got sucked into the vortex. And then we basically had an entire campaign changeover. And I can't quite remember the campaign we moved on to, but all the characters and all the people who still wanted to play carried carried over, yeah. and we, I basically ran another campaign for those folks uh with their characters for another another three to four years is it difficult to relinquish the reins to somebody else i mean once you're a gm are you always kind of like a gm are you always like you know are you always the guy that wants to be doing the creating doing the controlling kind of thing did you ever sit back and let somebody else kind of i guess lead you down the kind of the merry path I did. Uh, believe me, it is being a good GM, and I don't consider myself a particularly good GM, but I've, you know, I have had some of my players tell me, "Hey, I played D and D again, and man, you're a much better GM than my guy." But it's the only fix I can get. So hey, I, I'm, I take it. Um, mm-hmm. But it is exhausting, and I did. I wouldn't say many times, but I don't know, once every quarter, maybe one of the players would step up and say, hey, I'd like to give this a shot. And I would say to them, hey, go to town. I would love to take a break. <laughs> so, and basically I would kind of tell them, it's kind of like when you're watching a sitcom and you know that there's an overarching story, but you have these filler episodes because they have to get to, at least in the United States. I know you guys over in the UK, your television seasons, at least when I was there way back when, they tell a story and they tell it in as many parts as it needs to be told and they don't fill yes. it with a bunch of garbage. You know, yes. and I have a lot of respect for that, that it's not literally not commercially driven um, because it means that a story can be told well and and exist for its own sake, not for the uh, not for the financing that's behind it. So anyway, what I would do is I would allow them, I'd say, here's where I am, here's mm-hmm. where I need to get to, so as long as you don't change that, you know, we can do a little side quest or we can do something that, you know, you find to be unique and intriguing. And so they would plug in and I would roll with it and we would all be happy. I got, I mean, is that why, is that where the name came from? Because to me, the Grand Gamer Guild or Gamers Guild sounds like 
a collection of kind of I guess gamers, you know, guys that kind of you know as a guild as opposed to kind of like a sure a, a company. I mean, is that I mean, is that I mean, when did you when did you come up with the name? Is is that always again? Is that something that was kind of sitting in the background that you came up with? That was that linked to the kind of the role playing side of of what you've been up to. Um, actually, no. What it's really linked to is my more than anything. It's my was my time in Belgium. So the grand part has to do with um, the fact that I live in Grand Rapids um, and yeah. that I like alliteration. So, you know, <laughs> okay. the, um, the gamers part is obvious, uh, yeah. but it's, it's the guild part that really speaks to uh, the story I'm trying to create, for lack of a better way to put it. And what I mean uh -huh. by that is, so um, like many European cities, uh, we lived in Brussels, which is the capital of Belgium. And in the center of the city, there was an area called the Grand Place which is this large plaza filled with, uh, well, actually, it's like a large market square. And the surrounding area is all these old guild houses. And just having lived there and, and enjoyed the heck out of my time there, the guild houses, to me, aside from being absolutely fantastic in and of themselves, they kind of represent the idea of a membership and the idea of that once you get behind those doors you are privy to information and stories and secrets and tricks of the trade that other people are not privy to. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I guess in some ways, I mean, okay, so let, let me, um, and some of this, let's call this retconning, but now I see, um, when I say this out loud, I can see more of a connection to Dungeons and Dragons in the sense that, you know, there are a lot of uh, source books that have to do with, you know, guild membership and things that you get by being member of the thieves guild and, and yeah, other yeah. Uh, story driven guilds. But anyway, point being that I like the idea, you know, it's very difficult to sell a company. People really don't buy a company in this industry. They buy games and, and yeah. then if the next game you produce, they don't care for, they move on. I totally get that. So, and that's okay. It is, it is what it is, but I like the idea of hopefully cultivating an audience such that, they're excited about following my company and the idea being that they have this sense of recognition and membership and belongings to something and having access to something that is, you know, hopefully to them special and out of the ordinary and, you know, just just a great thing to be a part of. And, and so that's really where the uh, where the genesis of the name is and, and, is that... and the and the emotion and, and the vibe that I'm trying to cultivate among my uh my fans because you've got um your kickstarter bio mentions the grand gaming academy yeah i know that was not my smartest naming decision in that i named my company very confusingly after my or, or not after my demo team but um sort of parallel to my demo team so one of the ways mm -hmm. that i got involved in the industry mm -hmm. is before i was publishing but after i had been attending origins for a few years um, I never, I never can be just an attendee. I always like to, you know, give back a little bit more than that. And I started, um, I started volunteering for the convention itself. And then I started volunteering to be a GM. And then eventually I put together a team of GMs who wanted to go to conventions and teach people how to play games. And so that's what the Grand Gaming Academy is. We attend Origins and we attend Gen Con annually. And the and essentially we ally with companies, my own included, to teach the games there. So that, you know, well, for a bunch of reasons. One, because we like to teach. Two, because there's a lot of games out there. 
And a lot of folks won't buy a game unless they've had a chance to play it and know if they're going to love it. Yeah. And I hold my GMs to a pretty high standard. We get together and we literally practice playing the games and teaching them on a monthly basis so that we can do a proper presentation for the tr- for the publishers that trust us with with their their product. You know, they're they're giving us product to take to the floor. That product costs the money both because uh because they give us the games but also because of the shipping to get it to us. Yeah. And and then we're we're unofficially part of their sales team out on the convention floor. If we don't provide a bang up experience. Now now we can't help the game itself, right? I mean, some games people are going to like, some games people aren't going to like. Some games are are amazing like Terraforming Mars and we ally with Stronghold Games and I tell you what, we could run Terraforming Mars all day long and every game would fill up. And some games that I'll allow to remain nameless just don't resonate. And you could pick a million different reasons why they don't resonate, but you know, if you just can't get butts in seats sometimes, but it's our job to prepare them and be ready to run them. And again, be that unofficial part of the sales team so that hopefully if we can get the butts in the seats, we can do a good job and that person gets up and goes, man, that was awesome. And now I know how to play and yeah. now I can go buy it and bring it home to my family and teach them how to play. So that, yeah, yeah that's, that's the mission of the Grand Gaming Academy. Yeah, because there's only one, I mean, there's one company that I've seen kind of almost have kind of like people that do that in a professional manner, which is your D demo teams um, that used to be part of Esdevium Games. You know, Esdevium were bought by D. It's a UK company. And mm-hmm. they used to have teams that you'd find them at most kind of expos um, and events that they would they would have the latest kind of D kind of picking on the table that people could then go along and they'd be demonstrated and kind of shown, shown kind of how to play. Um, I mean, how... I mean that's. I mean that sounds like something that you, you you had going. You got a strong team, but what takes what makes turns you away from kind of the GMing to you know doing the demoing to actually sitting down with a piece of white paper in front of you and saying, kind of let's um let's put something together because the Artemis project isn't your first game. It's nope. your it's your it's your third now because you had your first one. Um, 2016 Unreal Estate. Yeah. And then you followed that up um, with uh, with Pocket Ops. Um, Correct. And actually, so, and so you're, you're, you're missing a tiny bit of the timeline, but that's not a problem. Um, I can, yeah. let me fill in a gap for you. So we actually, we did kickstart Unreal Estate, just like you said. But yeah. then um, feeling that I'd done pretty well and perspective being everything... I actually published a game called Stroop uh, in in the traditional way without Kickstarter, right All alongside right. Unreal Estate. Uh, and Stroop is a fantastic little game that has to do with the Stroop effect, uh, which mm-hmm. is that uh, mental color confusion thing. I won't go into it too much because it 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 doesn't explain well unless you see it. But it's a it's a fantastic speed game. And then we actually had a part in Endeavor: Age of Sail, which was co-published with my friend Helena Capel at Burnt Island Games. And we'll be releasing that after backers are fulfilled at Essen in just about a month. So I what actually were you, what have... were you doing with what sorry what was your involvement in Endeavor? Co-publisher. Really, I yep. played that on I played that on Friday. Oh, so the actual new edition. <laughs> I played I played the new edition on Friday. Yeah. Oh, well, tell the, me what did you think? Then. Um, I think it was one of 
it's um, extremely elegant in Thank terms you. of the mechanics or, and how, how, yep. how easy it is to pick up and play. That um, it's one of these interesting games that um, you you start off and you say, okay, so I am I'm picking my I'm picking my building. Okay, let's pick your building, and then you're getting your men back, and then you're getting you're getting more men. You're getting your men back, and then you're taking your actions and based on your your counters and based where you're placed. So it's like a mini kind of worker placement game, mm-hmm. and then by round about round five, the analysis paralysis sets in something so awful that I think we went from maybe spending about two hours, two two minutes per turn, to having everybody sitting there for about ten minutes, kind of oh, thinking. Really? Do I go here? Do I go in the shipping, or or do I take <laughs> over this lane, or do I do I do this, or or do I do I take do I, do I take over this part and um and, and and do I get my you know my my little blue counter with a free action? Um, there was a lot of positivity for the game. I think it was one of these games that crept up on you in terms of it got more complicated towards the end because it became more of a it was a a slight kind of area control and you were thinking at the time that you are racing along the tracks to increase the number of victory points it was very it was one of these games that you looked at it and went this is simple by the end everybody's kind of going getting angry with each other because they're kind of like well if you put that there i can't put this there i need to do this i need to open up this lane here so the um overall um yeah we really we really really enjoyed it in the group we played four players that's what i was just about to ask you so yeah i mean one of the things i like most about endeavor age uh endeavor age of sale is that as as games go it kind of teaches you how to play it because the yeah. first two turns are micro turns. And I remember the first time I actually played it, um, I, I kind of had to say to myself, uh, that's it. And I, and I wondered where the game was. But then, yeah. yes, very much, very much to your point, once you, uh, once you get to rounds five, six, and seven, it, there, the depth that's there becomes very apparent. And, and it's just a magnificent and, and elegant experience. Um, now, how, many of you, how many of you was it your first time playing? It was all of it was all of ours because okay. um, the person that had it, I, I don't think they had it. They actually had the game that long. I think this was the first time they aired it. So there was okay. nobody that nobody that had played the game before. In fact, um, Justin, who had played the game, had only really ran through it by himself to get to get himself ready for the rules. So sure. everybody was kind of playing it for the first time. So in terms of um, kind of setup, um, love the game trays. The game trays. Oh just, yeah, they're beautiful, uh, right? Oh, just uh, you know, um, this is really straight. But yeah, I mean, we kind of walked away from it. Um, I kind of got um, it. Kind of reminded me in terms of, um, no, it didn't remind me, but in terms of how easy it was to play, and then the complication kind of set in earlier on was kind of root, which is another game I've absolutely oh. adored recently, where the basic kind of. The basic kind of mechanics are there, and you can understand the mechanics really, really easily and really, really quickly. But it's like when you get into the further rounds, you're, you know, I was thinking, it's an interesting with Endeavor because there's tracks, but not every space on the track gets you victory points. So you're getting to the end where you're moving up. You know, you're moving up. Obviously, you're moving up from like being able to build buildings with three bricks or four bricks. But then mm-hmm. there's like one space that's got the victory point, and the next two don't. So it was almost a case at the end when we're sacrificing cards and realizing we're having to move back down the track. It was like, 
well, I, I don't have to worry about sacrificing this card because I'm not losing any victory points. But there was one point where I was about to move into the into three, seven victory point scoring bits. <laughs> okay. So by getting to one particular bit, and that kind of moved me up from being kind of very far behind to being, you know, pretty decent in terms of kind of the order which we finished off. But yeah, it was um, it was it was yeah, it was a pleasant pleasant surprise. I think I really, we really enjoyed it in terms of how it played and how quick it played, and we managed to get it all kind of finished within about maybe it must have been about an hour and a half, maybe an hour sure. twenty. So it didn't yeah, overstay its welcome, you know. No, and I think you'll find future experiences to be you know much much faster. Quite frankly, um, now that mm -hmm. you you know can get a rhythm down. Did you guys play with the exploits, or did you leave those out as it was your first game? Um, we left. I think we left them out. Yeah, we just played with the with the main kind of base stuff. We didn't add in anything over and over and above. Yeah. So we didn't want it over because it was. I think it's different with you've got maybe even if there's two that's played before, and the two can carry the other two people could to kind of help explain what they're meant to be doing. But um, we kind of left it kind of on the base stuff. That's not to say that we're not gonna kind of bring them in kind of on an on another game. But um, right. Yeah, I think was, that's definitely it, the way to go. I think that's a good decision yeah. to leave them out of your first play. I just, uh, anyway, yeah. No, no. Something that's important to me is that I can get a game to the table and I can play a game. I can set up a game and start kind of playing it and almost learn to play the game as I go um, and not be penalized for not knowing everything that's kind of going on, that you're kind of learning so everything's kind of building up. So even yep. if you didn't understand what was going over, as you said, going ha happening in the first three or four turns, by the time you got into the real meat of the game, you were well enough educated so you know what you were meant to be doing kind of going forward. So you didn't lose anything if you weren't sure how to be planning kind of going forward. Right. And that that's kind of attractive to me. Yep, and, as, you know, I, and I think you'll find... Sorry, I'm a terrible interrupter. And I think you'll find on future plays now that even though those first rounds are simple, you'll look yeah. at the board in a new way and yeah. begin to be able to strategize from the get-go and say to yourself, yeah. oh, I really want to get up that track. And, you know, um, anyway, yeah. So I'm glad no, you it was good. it so much. No, it was good. It was, it was strange because we didn't open up the kind of the last kind of um, territories until probably towards the end i think the sure. last one's kind of like um south america was like one of the last ones to to kind of to open same with them um, i think africa as well you know just mm -hmm. because at the beginning we weren't sure what we were doing and then somebody dominated one of the <laughs> one of the corner pieces they just had their guys all down and they were just getting card after card after card and they <laughs> did they just you know they scored but yeah it was a it's a it's a good game i had no idea you were involved in <laughs> that so that's a very pretty happy happenstance i think you call yeah, that's it, really funny it, no worries no that's worries pretty, that's pretty cool that's pretty cool um but yeah i mean why why go down the creative path i mean you seem to have things kind of going quite well with it you know the the demo team and you've got your gm kind of going i mean was it a drive for you to kind of push yourself kind of a bit further kind of creatively is that what you were looking at doing so yeah let me let, let me oops let me uh, speak to another sort of part of my gaming history. So yeah. it was around 2013. I actually, okay, so let, let me change how I'm saying this. No convention is perfect. And mm. even though my uh, Origins was my first big convention and I love going to Origins, 
there's always problems, right? Uh, who, who knows what? And I said to myself, well, you know, if, if I have a problem with something, why don't I try to fix it? And, you know, my, my version of fixing it was to start a convention. So that's what I actually mm. did. And in 2013, after about a year and a half of planning, I co-founded a uh, convention here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, I'm no longer involved with that convention. But the reason in part why is because I, I was involved with that convention for four years. And yeah. then um, around about, I don't know, around year, year three of those four years... I started getting the publishing bug. I just basically right. thought it would be fun. I had supported <laughs> some Kickstarters. I, you know, saw these great games coming out. And I said, well, heck, I can do this too. And mm -hmm. what's funny is at the time I went to my business partner and I actually had a plan that the publishing should be a part of the convention. Because I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, you know, as a convention owner that you're going to get let's use nice, easy numbers. You know you're going to get a 1,000 people to walk through the door. Yeah. So if you're going to publish a small game, why not build that game into your pricing model? And instead of charging $30 to get through the door, why not charge $40 to get through the door? And everyone gets a free game. And that would cover your... And again, this is all naivety. This was my what I was thinking <laughs> yeah. way back when, but perspective yeah. changes everything. So... I said, that sounds like a pretty cool idea to me. And I went to my business partner and I said, hey, what do you think of this idea? And he said something yeah. to me like, well, you know, I know enough about publishing to know that I really don't want to get into it. But if you want to do it, then, you know, hey, go to town, man. And so I basically said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And setting, setting aside that story, simultaneous to that, I'm a big podcast listener. Um, yeah. I, I listen to so many shows that I'm literally probably a month behind and I, I desperately struggle to catch up and stay current. But um, one of the shows I listen to is called Building the Game and it is co-hosted by Jason Slingerland and Rob Couch. Yeah. And I, I listen to that show from the beginning, both because I enjoy the content, but also because uh, Jason and Rob are local. And so... Basically, they call themselves a documentary podcast, and the podcast is about their adventures or misadventures in board game publishing. I'm um, sorry, board game designing, and the with with the goal to get published. And Jason was telling a story uh, about a game that he had designed that had been picked up and then let go by two different publishers. Which, of course, you know, it's super exciting to get picked up, and it's super frustrating to get you know uh, let go. Because yeah. you think you're on the path, and then all of a sudden you're not. And they had their reasons. And, and just to clarify, none of those had to do with the um, quality of the game itself. And I remember I was driving in my car, listening to him tell the story of, of the second publisher um, backing out. And I literally paused my podcast, picked up my phone, and said, Jason, I want to publish your game. And... <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, about a year later, we, we had a published game in Unreal Estate. Now, the game he was telling the story about is not the game that ended up being Unreal Estate. But, mm -hmm. um, and as far as I know, that design, which at the time went by the name Gunslingin' Wranglers, I think it is, is still probably, yeah. um, if memory serves, I, I think it's still on a shelf. I'm not sure that Jason has progressed with the design, but, but who knows. But, uh, yeah, so that's where Unreal Estate came from. It was just sort of this, 
I don't know, I, I do something and then I take the next step and then I take the next step. And, you know, instead of just attending Origins as an attendee, now I attend it as a publisher and here I am. And But, you know, you made an interesting comment before about the name of the company and, and a guild and it sort of feeling in name like a collection of companies. Well, again, I come back to the statement that perspective is everything. And this is a much, much harder thing to do than I ever would have imagined. And eventually, one day, maybe, fingers crossed, I could see a situation where instead of being a publishing company, I am a company that has publishing studios. You know, maybe the poor man's asthma day or something like that. But um, <laughs> but for right now, I'm just me. Just, just trying to crank out one game at a time and, you know, seeing if we can stick to the deadlines we set and, and mm. uh, you know, keep them going. And actually, to be fair, to say I'm a one-man show is not accurate at all. My um, my creative pillar of strength is Josh Capel. He is my lead developer, my art director, and my sometimes artist. So mm. he is his contribution to my process is tremendous, and and there is no way that I do it all myself. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 almost like you're going to be a one man one man army on some Kickstarter projects. I mean, we I've spoken about this quite recently about um. With a number of people, including um, kind of MMA from MR Studios, about all of a sudden being thrust into a person that's got to become like a Swiss army knife and still having to make sure you kind of take care of the self-care kind of portion of it as well. You've discovered you've got to be kind of like a multi-task type of thing. And sometimes it's difficult to, um, I guess, to kind of stick a hand up and say, actually, can I can I get some help? Some from some people, you know, rather yeah. than kind of kind of do it kind of do it all yourself, really. Um, you went and you went ahead, and obviously, um, um, real estate was the first one, but then you went into pocket ops. Yep. Um, which again, I mean, it was, you know, very very well received. I mean, that was it was like funded. You know, that funded like almost almost over a year ago now. Um, you had set yourself kind of like a. I would say a modest um, target of about five thousand dollars, and you kind of romped in to the tune of almost twenty, well, over twenty-four thousand dollars on there. Um, yep. Seemed to be a completely different game <laughs> mm-hmm. from Unreal Unreal Estate. I mean, at that time, when you was that um, was that something you came up with your at the time was that something you came up with at the team or was that another project that you'd seen kind of kicking about that you wanted to get your hands on or i mean how did um how did that kind of come about so uh pocket ops came about because there is an organization in the gaming world called protospiel that runs yes. satellite events all over at least all over the united states i'm not sure if uh if there are international protospiels but i attended uh protospiel chelsea back in I think it was July of 2016. And hmm. long story short, what's kind of funny, someone pointed out to me, because I didn't actually realize this myself, that after Unreal Estate and Stroop, the um, the three next games that I will end up publishing all came from that visit to Protospiel. So <laughs> um, it was originally intended that Endangered by Joe Hopkins was going to be published first. And then Pocket Ops, and then the Artemis Project, which was actually called Colonies of Venus at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what ended up happening 
was that Pocket Ops was a small project that I felt I could bang out. So we did that first. And then Endangered was supposed to be next, but we had a slowdown on the art, and there is a lot of art in that game. And so we just rejiggered the schedule and, and put Artemis Project first, and then Endangered is actually going to hit Kickstarter uh, early next year. So, but actually, you know what? I feel kind of dumb. I'm not sure if I actually answered your question or what, but uh, yeah, you can ask me again. <laughs> there's no there's no there's no wrong answers to any of the questions because I don't always ask clever questions. I'm not like you know. <laughs> I would never ever claim to be kind of like the. You're not Barbara Walters or <laughs> Diane exactly. Sawyer. I'm more like Joan Rivers. You know. There you go. More like makeup, makeup. Where the hell is makeup? <laughs> um, your red carpet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, it's interesting that you renamed the Artemis Project. Was that? Anything to do with the kind of the behemoth that was kind of terraforming Mars? Sort of. So, obviously, so when, okay, and I don't want to put words in the designer's mouths, but when I engaged with Colonies of Venus, to me, that title suggests a retro sci-fi thing. The kind of fiction that was put into print and on film in... The 60s, imagining what the millennium would be like. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of, when I hear Colonies of Venus, that's the image that I get. So simultaneous to that is the situation with Terraforming Mars, which is a fantastic game and obviously put out Venus Next. And there was at least one other Venus-titled game that I think landed on my radar at the time. And yeah. The industry, going in waves is not the right word, but but I think there's a zeitgeist at times where multiple thematically similar concepts end up coming out at the same time. And I talked to the team, the designers, and to Josh, and basically said, okay, I think we need to go a little bit further into the solar system. We can either look at the real solar system, or we can you know, make something up on our own. And we decided that looking at real science actually made more sense. And through a little bit of Googling and Wikipedia, Wikipedia-ing, we actually mm. came upon the Artemis Project, which was a real thing. And if you know your mythology and you know the solar system, you know that, you know, many of the, of the planetary bodies are named for uh, mythological gods and goddesses. Yeah. Obviously... Artemis is the name of our moon. And so the Artemis Project was actually a scientific body that looked at how realistic it was to colonize our own moon. As a part of that project, they they also engaged the idea of colonizing Europa because uh, Europa as a planetary body has an icy crust and li- an ocean beneath it. So it is considered to be a... Uh, high on the flagpole for, for for a place that might contain life. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it was sort of a joint reality with a tiny bit of creative license because even though the Artemis Project was focused on our moon, it uh, it did look at Europa and that's uh, and that's where we got it from. We, we you know it sort of it felt we felt like it rolled off the tongue. We felt that it sounded intriguing. We felt that it sounded not like retro sci-fi, but but more far-flung sci-fi, and uh, and there we are. I mean, I am a massive fan of kind of 
dice placement, dice engine, typey type games. Sure, I mean, me as well. Steam, steampunk Rally, kind of really, really loved that. Anything that kind of screams at me, where well, you can use dice, you can build an engine, you can use that to build other stuff as always, is always kind of good fun. I didn't get on with terraforming Mars. I have gone to great lengths <laughs> on social media to to kind of air my frustrations about kind of terraforming Mars and why I didn't go on with it. And that is a whole podcast in itself for another time. <laughs> um, and there's actually people that went to Tabletop Scotland will witness, witness me doing a five-minute rant on terraforming Mars. And I don't want to go into it because... Um, Stronghold Games did actually start following me on Twitter the other day, and I don't want to turn around and say I don't like. Well, and let me tell you something, if I may. You know, we're in an industry full of amazing people, and Stephen Bonacore is one of those amazing people. I am very fortunate to call Stephen a friend, and that man. You know, I mean, I don't know all the inner workings of Stronghold Games. I've been, I'd say, maybe one step closer to the inner circle than your average fan, just because Stronghold is one of the companies that we we demo for as part of Grand Gaming Academy, and also, yeah. you know, one of the companies that that I look to 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 figure out who I want to be in this industry. But you know, Stephen has spent darn near a decade busting his tail, and you know, whether you like Terraforming Mars or not as a game, I mean, I've only played it once to be honest, but um. You know, I am so happy for his success. It gives me no end of joy to see that he is finally getting his moment in the sun and and that all that hard work is bearing dividends. Not just because I um, am so happy for him personally, but because it shows that with hard work and and elbow grease and dedication and stick to that you can you can bust out. You know, someone said I think it was Mike Fitzgerald who said. Every company is just one title away from being a big company. And, you know, Stephen yeah. was well on his way to being a big company without terraforming Mars. But uh, it's almost as if he he got into a catapult and uh, and launched himself <laughs> because, you know, that is just amazing for him. So anyway, that, that's my that's my Bonacore stronghold soapbox speech for, for anyone who, <laughs> who cares to hear it. We'll put a marker in the notes so that people can fast forward it. <laughs> um. But this, I mean, it's it's doing well. I mean, when I mean, when you launched it, because it was a a little bit of a bigger risk than the previous games that you put on Kickstarter. Because oh no doubt. The, I mean, let's face it, the funding total was twenty five twenty five k twenty five thousand dollars. I mean, obviously you're sitting pretty because you've got sixty thousand. But was that something at the the kind of the back of your mind? I mean, I, I brought this up with a few kind of creators and the fact that this whole fund in the first 24 hours kind of thing that seems to be going about in Kickstarter at the moment. Um, were you tempted at the time to put a kind of a lower kind of target to try and make sure that the funding was hit? Or were you like, no, this is going to happen, stick with the 25k and let's, you know, I'm very, very confident this is going to do kind of very well. Sure. So, um, so you've you've actually asked quite a bit there, and I'll try to unpack it in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, the okay. So from the very beginning, it has always been my intention only ever to ask for what I actually need. And the driving mm-hmm. philosophy behind my Kickstarter projects, both well, all three of them, has been that I come to the table again asking only for what I need, but with yeah. the knowledge that I am putting up 
a substantial stake of my own money to bring this to fruition. That is to say, on pocket ops and on real estate, I asked for $5,000. Yeah. And I had $5,000 of my own, at least in the bank, to match what my backers were going to give me because mm-hmm. I didn't feel it was appropriate to ask them for more than I was giving myself. Okay. Um, but as many people have come to realize, the board game industry, you don't put a project up on Kickstarter and suddenly find yourself rolling around in a vat of gold like Scrooge McDuck. Um <laughs> You know, the truth of the matter is that even after doing two projects that by all measures are are very successful for what they are, um, yes. there was not extra money left over. There was not a giant um, investment left in my bank account that I could move forward into Artemis Project or any other game. And so when I um, when I was building the Artemis Project as, as a project, you know, I have some goals for myself. One... I want to put out a game that, I mean, forgetting game quality, because that's kind of a given. You know, I want a game that's fun to play. Everyone wants that. But yeah. from a aesthetic and a tactile standpoint, I want to put out a game that I genuinely want to play. A game that is fun to move the bits around. A game that satisfies visually. You know, we've all played prototypes. You can have a fun experience, but handling note cards and loose leaf paper it, it yeah. is not satisfying. It, it is no. definitely lacking. And that's why games, you know, that's why games evolve into the elaborate products that they are. So I actually toyed with a number of funding levels um, all the way from 40000 at the top end down to 25000 which is obviously where we settled. I had a lot of conversations with uh, friends and mentors in the industry who had run multiple Kickstarters and, you know, talked about that first day funding mentality, talked about the audience that I had built over time with Unreal Estate and Pocket Ops and Endeavor Age of Sale, talked about the game that I wanted to put out and what was a minimum acceptable print run so as mm-hmm. to be, you know, realistic, but also um, not overly costly and what was minimally acceptable in terms of the components that I was going to put into the box when all was said and done. And what did it mean if I only hit $25,000? And so add into that, as you had stated before, that my previous projects were small projects. They were games that, well, I don't want to say they were games that were targeted toward a particular audience. I think there is a subset of the gaming audience that gravitates towards small games and excludes big games. I also think there is a subset of the audience that gravitates towards big games and excludes small games. And here I was asking my small game audience to come with me, you know, saying to them, hey, you've had faith in me before. Follow me on this project, please. And and I did not know if they were going to come. And even so, I've not, you know, looked at every backer's name and seen who's crossed over from Unreal Estate and Pocket Ops to to the Artemis project. But um, but you know, did I know it was going to fund? Not even close. Did I have faith and hope and let's say a reasonable optimistic certainty that it was going to fund? I would be a liar if I said no. I mean, I'd run three projects. Between the three of them, we had 1,200, 1,200, and 7,500 backers. I'd done the math. I, I had, I don't want to call it an expectation, but a very, again, a very positive hope on what came, yeah, what could yeah. come to fruition. 
And yeah. I'm very fortunate that it did and that we were able to keep on chugging along. And here we are still with 10 days to go. We cracked another major milestone today, which was fantastic. And um, and actually yesterday, as of the time that we're recording this, yesterday we actually had the best, uh, one of the best days of our campaign. And, and that's in what, you know, is the, the middle of the traditional lull, which funny enough is part of what I spent uh, my day writing tomorrow's email about. <laughs> but that's a good thing to be though, is to be in that positive place where you can actually say, hey guys, we're, you know, we're continuing to kind of to storm this. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about- I know. I know. The Artemis Project. I, There's a lot of people talking about. There's a lot. Wherever I go on Facebook, amongst the groups on Twitter, I'm always seeing. Have you seen this? Have you seen this game? And it's it's kind of. Int- I mean, there wasn't a. Qu- I guess you know, when we were first started talking to arrange this, it was like, well, sh- what what game is it? And it was like, well, it's the Artemis Project. It's like, yeah, just yeah, just yeah. <laughs> You know, whenever, mm-hmm. when do you want to talk? Oh, I can talk. Yeah, let, well, let's just talk. You know, that's fine. Let's let's find a space and let's have a conversation on it, which was, you know, which was good. But there seems to be a kind of a, a kind of a positive buzz. It's funding. You've got kind of like the projects kind of behind you. For people who haven't heard and who have been living under rocks, rolling <laughs> rocks, and have stayed away from Kickstarter because it's an expensive business backing on Kickstarter nowadays, um, what can they expect from the Artemis project? What's the kind of the elevator pitch? What would you, you know, sure. if somebody says, tell me about the Artemis project, what are you going to say to them, Mark? Sure. So uh, the Artemis project is a story of colonizing Europa, both above and below the ice. Uh, over the course of six rounds, you're going to roll the dice, you're going to place them, and you're going to resolve them, and the dice are going to resolve in a different way depending on where you put them on the board. Uh, we have some key mechanics with the dice placement, you're doing a little bit of engine building, a little bit of set collection, and one of the you know, and reviewers time and again have have pulled this out, and it was intended. We have a mechanism called the exposure mechanism. One of the driving things that Daniel and Daryl did when they put together the mechanics for the Artemis project is they said, "How can we make a game where every die matters, where it's not the low numbers and it's especially not the high numbers, but." Every die is going to influence the board in a way that is impactful. And it came to be called the exposure mechanism, and I've referred to it as dice displacement, but it is very much a situation where in a substantial part of the board, lower dice actually uh, supersede high dice. So you are constantly looking at what the other players have rolled and making, making a move to what you need to get, not just based on what you need, but based on what they have showing, what their next move could be and the moves that they've already done. Because just because you want a resource in a particular amount doesn't mean you're going to get that resource in that amount. No. So that was probably that's... a little bit more than an elevator pitch, but I apologize. That's fine. We went... got the best no, no, that's good. No, no, we're going to, we're going up to penthouse levels, so you know it was gonna be <laughs> Very good. I think I think people um, you know want to know what it's kind of happening yeah i guess um one of the um i've recorded an episode quite recently which is um which is going to be about a dice um a combat dice game where you actually throw dice other dice oh wow 
um, called Masters of Ketdown, and that should be potentially out there by the time people are listening to this this episode as well. But my the point I kind of bring up in that episode um, is that the only issue I've ever had with dice placement games is you roll them and then that's it. Kind of nothing happens. You kind of play about with what it is. And one of my things that always frustrated me in something like Steampunk Rally was that um, you were always looking for the higher numbers because the higher numbers gave you more opportunity and the lower numbers were fine if you are wanting to clear out certain areas kind of thing. But that was, you know... But the idea of you saying, well, the lower numbers matter here because you can you can actually twist them around to kind of do more things is very, very kind of... very kind of interesting to me. Is it... Um, is it strange doing a kind of a big box game with regards to production? You got like lots more things to kind of be looking at, to take taking into consideration in terms of, you know, once, you know, it's going to get funded, it's going to be going out there. You're going to be then having discussions with kind of more discussions with like manufacturers and, you know, the the printing side of things, the logistics side of things. Is this is this a slightly different kind of ball game than what you were used to with say, you know, pocket ops for instance or. Oh, definitely. I mean, the whole point, you know, I know mistakes are going to be made. And I try to approach things carefully and systematically, but you can plan as much as you want, and life is still mm-hmm. going to throw you a curveball. One of the reasons why I started mm-hmm. with small projects is because small projects mean small screw-ups. Uh, mm-hmm. Big projects mean big screw-ups. And I didn't want to give myself the opportunity to screw up big until mm-hmm. I had given myself the opportunity to screw up small and learn from it. And... <laughs> So, you know, that's why I started with small projects. Um, You know, other people have started with gigantic projects and done just fine. I was not in a place where I wanted to take that chance. So, but yes, you you better believe it. It is, it's a whole different ballgame. A lot more moving parts. Um, When you change, when you knock over one domino, it, it, it influences a lot more dominoes in a big game than in a small game. And so you just need to be, very systematic and very careful. And, and even, even doing that, I guarantee you, um, some mistake, some unintentional error will creep into the final production, but you look at it, you make a note on it, you learn from it and hopefully you do better next time. Um, you know, we won't be the first, uh, large box Kickstarter that has some sort of a, a flaw. Uh, hopefully it's not a fatal (laughs) flaw. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was hearing that about, I mean, going back to Endeavour, um, I mean, the guy that um, owns it was saying, yeah, he was on the comments and people had complained about, there was a, he says he did notice like on a tiny speck on one of the boards. And he says, then we're complaining about it or that I think it was something like one of the counters, um, they were experiencing some of the paint had come off on some of them because they'd been put away maybe a bit too early. And he says, and people were flipping their, you know, losing their minds over it basically because one or two counters didn't have had a couple of little missing bits of purple paint and he was like you can solve that with a brush and a bit of purple paint you know it's a terrible frustrating thing however it is a little bit of wood and it's not the end of the world (laughs) kind of thing but people get very very passionate in kind of kickstarter comments as i'm as i'm sure (laughs) sure you're more than aware mark yeah they Um, do it's a bit of a mixed bag because, you know, you want to... Look, people are putting up their money. They took a big yeah. chance on Endeavor yeah. and on Burnt Island Games and on Grand Gamers Guild. 
and we absolutely want to give them the product that they paid for. Yeah. Um, you know, the issues are enough that we are definitely addressing it on a uh, manufacturer level and we are, we're going to make good, um, with, with, with every, every customer, every backer in every way we can. Um, and you know, that's, that's the best I could say at the moment because it's kind of still in process. We're having that conversation with the manufacturer and we're in the process of putting together a, an inventory of everyone who's having an issue and we will, we will make good as soon as, uh, as as soon as it's practically possible to do so. Yeah, it was interesting that um, the person that was who owns Endeavor is actually a game designer themselves. <laughs> they were oh, just okay. like, uh, you know, so they were very, very forgiving. They weren't kind of ranting about the game. They were kind of like, well, come on, it's a bit of wood <laughs> kind of thing. Right. So they were very, 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 very forgiving about kind of like they understand the manufacturing process. So they're more than aware of the, sure. of the kind of the potential things, the, sl- the slips and the slides that kind of, kind of, kind of happen over the way. Which right. is, which the other is thing, um, the other thing I'll say is yeah. it's it's really easy to get very excited and let the internet be a very solid shield. You know, no one can uh, yeah. hurt you from the other side of your screen, and so the comments get incendiary. And of course, I, I think we as human beings read online stuff in about the most negative way possible. I'm ninety nine percent certain that if I sat down with any one of these guys or gals across a gaming table, you know, we could roll the dice and have a pint and have a great time together. So, absolutely. you know, it, it's tough not to take things to heart when the um, barrage of complaints begins to stack up, but you got to, you know, breathe, know that you're doing the best you can and yeah. just keep on keeping on. And, exactly. you know, once these people see us making good for them, they'll they'll chill. It'll happen. It's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll all we'll all have a great time together. So, I mean, with um, with where you are with the Artemis project, has this opened up your scope for the types of games you're going to consider for the future? I mean, are you Absolutely. now saying, well, you know, big box is, you know, we've now got a decent number of backers here. We've got our backers from our previous projects. Is that kind of opened up your scope to say, well, actually, yeah, you know, that guy that we maybe thought was going to be a bit too big of a project, let's contact them and maybe bring them in because it was a really, really interesting idea kind of thing. Definitely. So one of the driving philosophies of the way I want to publish um, and has been since the beginning is I have this hashtag that I sometimes use that's uh, game night go to. And my goal as a company is to cast a wide net. I want to be a company that you can pull, you know, if you're having a six hour game night, I want you to be able to pull three to four of my games off of your shelf uh, from your opener to your main course to your finisher and have a varied experience. And and uh, like I said, be, be the game night go-to. Be the company that you could spend the entire night playing the games and go, man, I can't believe the same person published all these or the same company published all these. So yeah. to, to yeah. answer your actual question, the answer is yes. I mean, our next game, Endangered, is a co-op, uh, co-op game about saving endangered species. Uh, it's scenario-based, and it has two scenarios in the box initially, tigers and sea otters. So we've we've not done a co-op before. The game after that, called Garinto, is an abstract uh, tile drafting and engine building game uh, with, a, with sort of a, an, an Asian philosophical elemental type of theme. 
And our game after that, Lost Vegas, is a post-apocalyptic game with uh, the story of, you know, Vegas, let's say, 100 years into the future that's been taken over by the desert. And yeah. your goal is to recover it. So, I mean, I don't think any one of those games, either mechanically or thematically, sounds like anything we've done. And if I can, you know, eventually we'll run out, I'm sure. But, um, you know, if I can continue to publish games that do, I mean, maybe not new things in the industry. I mean, granted, I'll fully admit that I think most people look at the dice exposure mechanic as a new thing um, among the spectrum of dice placement. But if I can continue to do new things that expand my catalog, again, from the, both the storytelling as well as the mechanical perspective, and that resonates mm -hmm. with the audience, then I will be a very happy publisher for a good long time. <laughs> well, that'll be, I mean, can't wish for more, much more than that, can you, really? No, nope. I've been unhappy doing work. I, I don't want to be unhappy anymore. We, we started the conversation with that. So, yeah. you know. Well, I do have one more question for you. Fire okay. away. You have been chosen as one of a member of the crew who is actually going to go and colonize Europa, okay? Mm -hmm. You know it's going to be a long journey. So the head of... Um, the head of the team says, I'll tell you what you can do, Mark. He says, basically, I am going to allow you to take any three board games you want with you on the mission. There'll be a lot of time, so we're going to have a lot of time to play whatever you want. And also, there's a crew of eight going on this mission, so you're going to have plenty of people to take with you. Now, the director of operations has managed to pull a blinder because obviously they've got government connections so they can get their hands on any single game at all, be it first edition, second edition, out of print edition, they'll get it reprinted for you. What three games do you take with you on your uh, on your journey, sir? Wow, that is an amazing question. Okay, so I think the first game I would have to take with me would be Power Grid. Um, and okay. to be fair, this was, uh, this power grid was mentioned both in a recent episode of heavy cardboard, as well as someone put up a thread about power grid. And so it's very close to the front of my mind, but for a game that was done back in 2004, power grid yeah. is an amazing game. <laughs> I mean, also I should say, as long as I get to bring all the expansion maps and expansion yes. content. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. So if we could tuck that under this conversation, then 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 yes, I stick with Power Grid. Okay. Um, and the second game? Okay, so I'm going to continue cheating a little bit and saying that the expansions can come with. So I want to bring Ticket to Ride and all of its expansions <laughs> and maps and okay. things like that. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, that would be no end of gameplay. So I think I've thoroughly cheated on two out of three of these. And the Let third me... one, you might as well keep it up. All right, well, if you're going to allow me to continue cheating, then yeah. I will bring the uh, the game that actually, it was the very first game that I ever saw and sort of bought into the hype on, and that is uh, Small World. The, oh, okay. uh, yeah. the box cover and, and the story that they were trying to tell in Small World just sank its claws into me. And I remember, I can't remember what year it came out, but I remember the year that I went to Origins, 
I made sure to sit down and play that game. It was, I had an agenda and I was a man on a mission. And Small World, again, has a ton of expansions. I love the way it plays in terms of the mix and match of the powers and the races. And, I mean, you just have, you know, between those three games and all their expansions, they're all very different. Uh, they're all telling different stories. And, you know, mechanically, I don't think they could be more dissimilar. So <laughs> so there you go. Those those are my three. If I could tuck those three games under my seat, maybe in some kind of a, you know, uh, Oh, there's proper hole. storage, Mark. Oh, no, there's okay, proper all right. storage. Oh, these, these things are getting their own little isolation chamber and stuff like that. There's going to be Fantastic. more moisture happening in that. They're going, to be, they're going to be well looked after. You've got to keep the crew happy if they're going to be doing a little bit <laughs> of, you know. You know, if they're going to be doing a little bit of a shake-and-bake shake kind of colony, that's, that's right. fine. Um, thank you very, very much for coming on. Oh, I know we haven't pleasure. kind of... We kind of we kind of done our usual. We kind of, like, talked about everything about the game, except we did the game for about five minutes. But I'm sure, <laughs> as I say, the Artemis Project is kind of... There's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of buzz about it. People are very, very interested in kind of finding out kind of... Um, more about it and there'll be a a lot of people that'll be very excited when they finally get their hands on a copy if they want to keep an eye on what you get up to where can we find you on the interweb nets mr specter sir okay so um so the website is grandgamersguild.com and Mm -hmm. you can look at everything we have going on there if you want to receive my email ramblings on an almost weekly basis. You can also sign up for our email newsletter. We don't, uh, you know, I'm usually pretty good about weekly. Um, in fact, that's, that's my kind of my discipline right now. I've been pretty good about it. Um, other than that, we're on Facebook. You can either search. Yeah. You can just search grand gamers guild on Facebook. And my, my company logo of the, uh, Hooded Lady is, is pretty remarkable. I, I love it. I get a lot of compliments on it. So I think it's pretty iconic. And uh, you'll recognize it if uh, you look the company up. On yeah. Twitter, we are at Grand Gamers Guild uh, with no vowels. So spell it out and then pluck out all the vowels and you'll find me on there. And that's also uh, the same at Grand Gamers Guild on Instagram as well, where we're not nearly as active, but but I'm doing my best to, to try to step up. So yeah. Excellent. Well, what we'll do is we shall take make sure that all those links go in the show notes so that we have notes to show. Um, if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, then you can go to the internet and you can search for us or you can find us. If you go to Twitter, we're on We're Not Wizards. We are on Facebook at We're Not Wizards. We are on Instagram at We're Not Wizards. For some reason, um, we're on Tumblr at We're Not Wizards. We are got our website, which is We're Not Wizards.com. We have got our blog where we write about games and such. And other people write about games and stuff as well. So um, go there and check out what these other people are um, writing about, which is We're Not Wizards.blogspot.com. You can email us, which is magic at We're Not Wizards.com. Yes, I am aware of the irony of the email address. Yes, I decided it. Um, and you can find us on all the various different kind of podcast catchers like Stitcher and Spreaker and Acast and, um, oh, Spotify. Yeah, we're on Spotify as well. Um, if you like what you've heard tonight and, uh, Mark's been a fantastic guest, please jump on to Apple Podcasts and drop us a subscription because it makes everybody happy 
well, it makes me happy. It's just me, nobody else. Um, and if you like us even more, consider giving us a rating or a review. If you are going to be giving us a rating or a review, vitally important bit of information coming up. Remember, don't give us 10 stars because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us one because it makes us cry. And I am not <laughs> an attractive crier. You know, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm just not good. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's average and we're just a little bit average. But the person who's not been average tonight is a rather wonderful, rather fantastic. And Mr. Mark Spector. Thank, Thank you for you having very, me. Very no, it's been an absolute pleasure. There are only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we are many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Mark? No, definitely not. Absolutely not. Thank you very much, sir. And and the second thing, oh, the dog is, though. Oh, look, the dog's not happy. <laughs> no, he just decided to speak up. That's kind of funny for the uh, at the end yeah. of the interview here. <laughs> And uh, the second thing is to say, say goodbye. So it's a, it's a goodbye for Mark. So say goodbye, Mark. See you later, everybody. And it's a goodbye for me. Remember, stay safe, roll6s.com. And um, if you're into your dice, if you're into your dice placement, if you're into your resource management, if you're into looking at exciting, beautiful, colourful looking projects and something that's creating a buzz or a hype and you're after your next Kickstarter project, then make sure you check out the Artemis Project. But until the next time, goodbye. (laughs) 